Well, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. We are so glad that you are with us on this slightly confused October morning. I don't know that it knows what it wants to be this morning in terms of the weather, but we're glad that you are here. We are in the middle of a sermon series where we're talking about trees. Now, the reason that we're talking about trees may not be initially apparent, but if you actually kind of track through kind of the key operative metaphors throughout all the major world religions, you will find that one consistent theme emerges, and that's they point to trees in some shape or form as a source of wisdom. We can learn a lot about life from trees. And in particular, the Bible talks about trees over 800 times. It's kind of maybe the dominant metaphor for human life. And so we thought that we should mine kind of kind of the best of science around kind of nature and kind of the specifics of how trees grow and flourish to maybe identify what we can learn from trees and how we can apply them to our own life. So in week one, just a little catch up if you've forgotten or you were out. Week one, we talked about how all trees have a purpose. No trees in the middle of their growth change their mind as to what they want to be. Apple trees don't look over at orange trees and say, that looks pretty good, maybe I'll do that instead. They are committed and singular in prioritizing their purpose, which is to produce fruit. And then last week we talked about how trees live with a rhythm. And this rhythm allows them to flourish. And so kind of taking the best of both of those ideas, we tried to apply them and using kind of tree metaphor, graft them on, onto our own life to figure out what does it look like for us to live towards a purpose and what are the rhythms that allow us to achieve and maybe focus in on that purpose to create space for us to be able to live into this life-giving purpose. Now, one of the fun parts about this series for, at least for myself and I think for Allie too, is that you kind of get to like nerd out on like all these fun facts about trees. And one of the things that has be, uh, kind of emerged in recent study of trees that I think is really interesting is they have learned that trees talk. I don't know if you know this, but trees talk to one another. Now, this, I think this is super cool. One of the things that happens is they have noticed that trees use kind of an interconnected network under the ground made up of roots and kind of mushroom, fungi, kind of mycelium network, and they pass information to and from each other. Now, one example of how this information is passed and what it does for a tree is, for example, pretend that you're a birch tree. And all of a sudden you have a bunch of insects on you who are starting to eat at your bark and your leaves and kind of your flesh. Well, what happens is this birch tree will send this information to the other birch trees connected to this network. And those birch trees will start to release these kind of aromas and these fragrances that attract the bugs that eat the bugs that eat the birch trees. Isn't that interesting? So it's like, it's like kind of like neon lights, you know, attracting all of the bugs that get rid of the bad bugs that are eating these trees. It's just one example of the ways that trees talk to each other. Now, what's interesting, though, is it's not just through the root system, but it's through kind of this fungal network, kind of this mycelium. If you've ever looked at it, it kind of looks like cotton candy underneath the ground. If you've ever been digging and found like kind of this spider webby looking stuff, this is kind of this interconnected kind of super highway that goes throughout all of the forests in the world. Now, they've actually kind of cheekingly coined this the wood wide web. But this is how trees 
pass. I know, I wish I came up with that. I'm like, God, that would have been so good. And you know the person who first came up with this, like first found this network, didn't come up with the clever name, and nobody remembers who the first person was. They just remember. The, anyway, not the point. But in and through this wood wide web, say that five times fast, trees communicate and talk to each other. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. If I were to have kind of posed this question at the beginning of the sermon, what type of tree or what is the best environment for a tree to flourish, perhaps you would have answered like I would have, that kind of the best ideal environment would be for a tree to be out by itself without any competition for sunlight or resources, maybe a tree up on a hill, nice breeze, plenty of sunshine, maybe good fertile rich soil, and that would have been the ideal environment for a tree to grow and thrive. And you would have been wrong, just like I am wrong, because the best environment is actually in a densely crowded and packed forest. Now you think, wait, there's competition for resources. You know, trees are blocking each other out for access to to the sunlight, and there's competition under the ground for nutrients, water, all of the things that happen in the soil. And you would be right about that. But trees, at least in the same family, talk to each other and they're able to share resources. So if you are in a birch tree forest or a fir tree forest and you have a larger tree, what you can find is through this network under the ground that it shares resources and nutrients with the struggling trees. And so trees are in this relationship with each other and they're aware of the needs of the other trees around it because they are tapped in to this larger kind of um, wood wide web where they get the information about how these trees are supposed to live and grow and flourish. Now for us, we don't have a wood wide web, but there are things that we can tap into that give us the information that we need to know how to grow and thrive and flourish. And before there was the world wide web and before there were books, there was a tradition of oral storytelling. This is kind of the oldest version of how information was passed from family to family, from tribe to tribe, from generation to generation. The things that you wanted to make sure that other people knew about the world, about their place in it, and about what it means to live a flourishing life would have been contained in the stories and the myths that were passed down. Now, we all love a good story. And the reason that we love these stories, besides from their entertainment value, is they teach us, they form us. We learn best through stories. I think one of the things that I find so fascinating is the percentage of time that Jesus teaches in stories. Well, again, because this is what happens in the human brain. There are parts of the human brain that light up and respond to stories in a way that we don't respond to just facts and figures and information. It's actually one of the things that Allie and I try to do when we're crafting and shaping sermons is how do we not just present information, but how do we create a narrative that takes people on a journey that helps this information stick? And stories are the best way to do that. My guess is if you recall maybe some stories that you've heard, it doesn't matter if you heard them five years ago, 50 years ago, you can recall that story in perfect detail. But if I asked you to kind of share some of the information from the story or a sermon that I preached four weeks ago, you got no chance. Not even my wife can tell you what I preached four weeks ago. I can't even tell you what I preached four weeks ago 
Because information doesn't stick that way, but stories stick. So, the stories that are all around us teach us. They impart information into us about the world and about our place in it and about how we live. But the question for all of us this morning is, what are the stories that we're listening to? What are the stories that we're living under? What are the stories that we're allowing to teach us? Because there's all different types of stories about how the world works and about our place in the story. For some of us, we ascribe to the stories about success. These stories frame the world. They tell us about what the world looks like. They let us know that the best kind of life is possible for the people who are the most successful in this world. And then there's all sorts of kind of guidance for how to live well in this life. The people that are successful are good. The people that aren't successful are bad. And here's what it looks like to be one of the good and successful people. See, every story imparts information about the world, about the good guys and the bad guys in this world, and about what you need to do to be one of the good guys. It kind of gives you something to follow. It's like a blueprint of sorts. And there's all different types of stories. There's another story that maybe some of you ascribe to, and this is kind of the political story. This paints in bold black and white paint. And there are very clear heroes, and there are very clear villains. And the solution and the way that you navigate this story is to defeat the villains so that the heroes can have more prominence. And it uses very extreme language. And we listen to these stories, and it tells us, and it informs the world that we think that we're living in. It paints a picture about our current reality. Maybe it's a positive one. More likely, it's a negative one. It's a pessimistic outlook on the world because of the villains in the story. And if only we could do the things and implement the politics that would defeat the evil antagonists, then we could have access to the good life. That's another version of the story. We all know people. Maybe you're going to spend time with them at Thanksgiving who live and believe this kind of story. There's also the love story. This is a version of a story that tells us that the world we live in is, contains one special, unique person. And if all we do is find that one person, then everything in life will be okay. There will be no problems. There will be no challenges. There will be no arguments. Everything in life will be smooth sailing if you can find that one white knight or that one beautiful princess. Everything in life will be okay. And if life's not okay, it's because you haven't found the right one. And so we all know people who chase after the right one, after the right one, after the right one, because they buy into this story that tells them how to live life. So the first question is, what kind of stories are we listening to? And the second question is, what are those stories doing to us? Another way to ask this is this. Is the story you're living giving you life? Is it creating a broader, more expansive world? Is it helping you identify your place in it? How does it paint the other people around you? Are there very clear good guys and bad guys? Is it black and white? Is there any nuance in the story that you're living and listening to? If you're always busy and tired and stressed and frustrated, 
and feel like the victim, my guess is the story that you're living, the story that you're living and listening to is not giving you life. In fact, I was listening to a conversation between uh, an author, Arthur Brooks, and kind of a, a medical doctor, Peter Tia, and they were having a conversation about the differences between people who reported a high level of satisfaction in life and people who reported a low level of satisfaction in life. And they were having this conversation. And the primary difference between the happy people and the miserable people, their words were, the happy people ascribed to a transcendental view of life. Now what that means is they just had a broad view of life. The happy people had the broadest view of life. The miserable people had the narrowest view of life. And as I was listening to this, it reminded me of this quote from Diane Ackerman. It says, I don't want to get to the end of my life and find I have just lived the length of it. I want to live the width of it as well. And so it's the story that you're listening to and the story that you're living into. Is it broad and wide and encompassing? Is it generative and leading you to a place of more and more life? Or is it constrictive and narrow and leading you to a place kind of where you turn further and further inward, away from all of the other people around you? It's not just enough to have a long life. But the goal is also to have a wide life as well. This is what we find in trees. It's not just enough to have a long life, but to participate in the larger story that's more generative, cooperative, that shares with the other trees around it, that is life-giving. Trees do this well. And the question is, what does it look like for us to learn how to do this in our own life? Simply, a flourishing life cultivates a life-giving story. Now, as we're thinking about what it looks like to cultivate a life-giving story, it reminds me of this very specific period of time kind of in the story of Scripture. So if you kind of put on your memory caps from Bible school, there was a period of time when God brought the Israelites out of slavery and captivity out of Egypt, and he's bringing them to the promised land. And there's this moment where Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive kind of the Ten Commandments, this set of instructions that have a very specific purpose. The set of instructions is not to be punitive, to be restrictive. See, that's the misconception we think about the rules that God gives us. We think they're narrow and confining, but actually the purpose of these rules is to help us to tap into the broadest, and the most life-giving life possible. And so God gives Moses these commandments and he, takes them, he says, take them down to your people. And then he gives them some instructions about why they should follow these rules. He says, listen, if you will listen to these rules, if you will live out these statutes and ordinances and commandments, if you will put these things into practice, you will find a full and broad and wide and generous life. It's not a, a life that gets narrower and more restrictive, but it becomes bigger and broader and more beautiful. And then he starts to use language about, you know, that Jesus mirrors about a city on a hill and a light to all of the other nations. There's this life-giving abundance that will come from following these rules. And then he goes on and he says this for Moses to give to the people. 
Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Keep them in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away. That pretty much kind of covers all the time, right? Like either when you're home or when you're away. Recite them, talk about them, these commandments, these rules, this instruction. And when you lie down and when you rise, it's trying to cover all the bases, there's no gaps in this. Home and away, awake and asleep. Then he says, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now maybe some of you have friends who are Jewish and you've noticed kind of at the entry into their home, they have what looks like kind of like a little scroll that's affixed to the doorpost. It's called the mezuzah. And this contains some of these words and instructions, this prayer about the God is one Lord. It's contained there. They're trying to follow this Deuteronomy 6 command. Now, some of the people kind of, if they're kind of more observant Jews, anytime they enter or exit their home, they'll touch the mezuzah kiss their hands, maybe touch their heart. It's a way of kind of honoring this set of instructions. It's a way to kind of put into practice kind of a rhythm, a way to repeat and remind yourself of the ways that you're supposed to live. Now, here's why God gives them this instruction. And he anticipates their questions. Because sometimes it's not just enough to know what to do, but why we're supposed to do it. And so God kind of follows through with this. This is what he says later at the end of Deuteronomy 6. He says, in the future, when your children ask you, what is the meaning of these statutes that the Lord our God has commanded us? Oh, why do we have to do all these things? Why do we got to go to church? Why do we have to pray before meals? Why do we have to, why do we have to, why do we have to? Then you shall say to your children, not because God said, but what, are they, what do you say back? You remind them of the story, the story that we're living in, the story that we're a part of, because these stories impart information about the world that we live in, about our role and our place in it, and what it means to find life. So you shall say to them, we were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to take us to, into the promised land, into a place of life and abundance, to give us the land that he promised to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all of these statutes, to fear the Lord, reverence and respect, to orient ourselves in relationship to God for our lasting good. For our lasting good. We're a part of a life-giving story, one where the world that we live in was created by God. It was created good by God. God loves us, cares about us, and has a role for us to play in this larger story. Part of that role means living the way that God calls us to, because we, when we live in this way, it attracts others and inspires others to live in this way. It's a way that is filled with life. This way that is filled with abundance. Sometimes it may feel restrictive, but ultimately it leads us into the path of life. This is what scripture says over and over and over again. We do this for our lasting good, as is now the case. And then it says, if we diligently observe 
this entire commandment before the Lord, as he commanded us, we will live rightly or righteously or abundantly as God intended. There's all sorts of stories that we get to choose kind of what we've listened to, what we believe, what we live out. But they don't all serve us the same way. They don't all lead us to a place of life and fullness and flourishing. My question is, if you inventory the stories in the life that you're participating in, does it lead to your lasting good? I know that's the promise that it gives you. I know it gives you a whole set of instructions to chase after. But if you never get there, that treadmill keeps moving. Is it really serving you? As we think about what would it actually look like to cultivate and participate in this life-giving story in our own lives, I think some of the instructions in Deuteronomy would serve us well. It kind of focuses on three areas, three aspects of ways that you cultivate this life-giving story. The first one, it says in your heart, it says keep these instructions in your heart. This is really a kind of in the Jewish understanding of the command center of your life. It really asks the question, what is it that you believe? Not do you believe in God, but where are you placing the weight and the trust of your life? If all of your time, effort, energy, resources are going after climbing the ladder or moving your way through some social network or pursuing love and relationships or pursuing beauty and status and appearance or fame and popularity. If kind of the resources of your life are heading after something, that's what it means to put your, your trust in it. That's what it means to believe in something. And so by giving us the instruction to write it and keep it in our hearts, it's saying, what story are you actually believing in? Is it God's story? Is it the larger story that we have the opportunity to participate in or is it some other version? The next kind of area from the heart, or the heart, excuse me, head, shoulders, knees, toes, heart to mouth. It says, recite this to your children. When? When you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise up. What are the rhythms? What are the ways that you are sharing this story in your life? Maybe it's not to children. Maybe it's to a spouse. Maybe it's to friends. Maybe it's to a significant other. What are the ways that you are repeating and telling the story that you are living in, that you believe in? Because it's not just enough to keep it in your heart. Because we all know people who say that they have one story in their heart and affirm and live out another story with their life. So what does it look like to have that type of consistency in our life where what we say we believe, we share? What's going on? Ah, I'm in a really difficult season. And I know that, like, in the end, like, God is with me. Doesn't mean that there's some magic wand coming, but I know that I'm not alone in this. This is what it means to share this story, to recite these truths in our life. It's not just about introducing yourself to random people and saying, do you know Jesus? That's probably a little too far 
and extreme for most of us. But it's about what is the way that we're telling the story of our life and how does it incorporate and participate in God's larger story? Do we see ourselves as actors in this story and do we name our actions, our values, our beliefs, our choices through this lens of the story that we believe in? Parents, when you tell your kids to do something or not to do something, how do you frame it? Is it because I said so? Sometimes that's necessary. But does it help them see the larger story of who God has called them to be? It's not just about avoiding harmful substances or harmful influences. The reason that parents want children to make wise choices is because of the life that's available on the other side of them. This is the same thing that God wants for us. And so parents, how do we tell our kids this? How do we recite the story that we want them to live into? That's the mouth. And then the last is the hand, the head, and the home. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to kind of say and hold in our hearts what we think we believe, the story that we want to participate in. It's another to tell the people in our lives about it, to share of it. But when it comes down to our our choices, when values compete, when we don't have enough time to do everything we want, when we don't have enough money to spend in all of the places we want to spend it, when we have to say yes to some things and no to other things, are our choices in reflection of our professed values and our professed beliefs. Is there a consistency in our life in line with this larger story, with our hands, the things that we do, with our heads, the thoughts that we think, and with our home, the values, the way that they manifest in our life. This is what it looks like to cultivate a life-giving story, is to, one, be aware of the story that you're living and that you're choosing to live into, to begin to talk about, to share that story with yourself and with others, to repeat the story, to know more about the story. And then lastly, What does it look like to live out a life in reflection of that story? This, scripture says, is the path to life. This leads to our lasting good. And this is the opportunity that we have this morning. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we are grateful that one, we get to come and gather together to be reminded of the larger story of which we can be a part. God, help us to hold it and keep it in our hearts, to let it flow from our lips and let it reflect in our homes. God, we love you, and we are grateful for the love that you give us that shapes and forms and molds and allows for all of this to be possible. We pray all this in your name. Amen.